Yeah. <clears throat> if you guys have not turned there yet, uh, we're going to be in Exodus 19, like you just read. Um, and today we are taking a break uh, from the series we've been in of looking at different parables, and we're going to spend our time this morning uh, stepping back into our covenant series as we look at the Mosaic Covenant. So I want to begin with a question. How do you know that you have a good relationship with someone? See, the question itself is somewhat difficult because it very much depends on what type of relationship you have with someone that constitutes good or bad. You see, the level of relationship ultimately dictates what is good. So for, for some of us, when we think of that relationship with an acquaintance, a good relationship might simply just be that I know their name and I actually will acknowledge them in public versus see them and try to figure out, hey, how can I walk around this path not to actually say hi? Or what about for an actual friendship, a, a good friendship with someone? See, that probably means you're, you're going to know who they are. You're going to know what they like, what they do in their free time. They're going to be somebody you actually want to hang out with. I mean, how, how good of a friendship do you have if you're like, I don't actually like hanging out with that individual? To be a friend is to do life together. Or, even, or think of your family. What does a good relationship with, with your parents look like or your siblings? I know for me and my family, I'd say part of it having a good relationship is that, yes, they're my family, but they're also my friends. They're also people I enjoy doing life with. It's not just simply, oh, I have to be there for the holidays, I have to be there for Christmas and Thanksgiving, but I actually look forward to spending time with them. You see, it's, it's family plus. You see, as your relationship progresses, so do your expectations. When we think about a dating relationship that then progresses into a marriage relationship. You see, within a marriage relationship, you actually make a vow. You make vows before God and before one another and before your friends and family to say, this is what it means to have a good relationship with you. And these are things that I'm going to strive to hold to every day of my life as long as we both shall live. And in a marriage relationship, you actually have more depth with the emotional and physical intimacy than any other relationship. They're the first person you call when, when you've got something exciting or something sad you want to share. You see, good in a relationship really constitutes based on what kind of relationship you have. So, so what about God? What about the God of the universe? What does it mean to have a good relationship with God? What does it mean to have a right relationship with God? Exodus 19, today's text, uh, the Mosaic Covenant, um, also called the Old Covenant, really starts to unpack what it means for Israel to actually have a good relationship, what it means for Israel to actually have a right relationship with God. And we're going to unpack this text in kind of four different sections today, and that will be on the screen for you. So we're going to begin by looking at God's covenant explained, and that's going to be verses 1 through 8. God's people prepared, 9 through 15. God's presence revealed through the end of the chapter. And then ultimately, we're going to look at God's people in need. So let's begin with God's covenant explained, 
starting in verse 1. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they set out for Raphidim, and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came, and he called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So Israel finally comes to the edge of the mountain. And Moses goes up and brings back the word of the Lord. And it's important to note that in verse 4, this is ultimately how God starts his proclamation to his people. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. See, for picking up in the covenant series, the last covenant we looked at was the Abrahamic covenant. And that was in Genesis 12 and 13 and continuing. And you kind of see that this is a huge time period that has passed since that moment. Yet throughout it, God has stayed faithful to his word. He stayed faithful to his covenant. For he told Abraham, hey, out of you, I'm going to raise up a nation. And that nation is Israel, the very nation we read about in this story. It also we see in, in Genesis 15 where he says, this nation that I, that I raise up through you is going to spend 400 years in captivity. But then I will bring you out. And we know that the Israelites spent 400 years under Egyptian rule, slaves to Pharaoh. And so when Jesus says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, he's really bringing us to the beginning of the book of Exodus. As we see God's people struggling in a land that is not their own, and God out of there calls Moses and says, you will go to Pharaoh and you will tell him that you need to come to this mountain to worship me. And most of us know the story that transgresses from there as Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let these people go. And God says, I will show you my power and sends these plagues, 10 of them, that ultimately climax in the death of the firstborn son, as well as really the, the initiating of the Passover feast that becomes an annual tradition for Israel. And it is finally out of there that Pharaoh relinquishes his hold on Israel and says, okay, get out of here, go. Yet it's only a matter of time before he realizes he made a mistake and chases after, which leads to the epic story of the crossing of the Red Sea, where Israel was able to cross the Red Sea on dry land, and as Egypt came through, tracing after them, God allowed the waters to just go back into form and to swallow up the Egyptians. And finally, God brings them to the mountain. 
He brings them to the mountain to ultimately say, this is where you are going to meet me. But what's important to note in, in God using just this simple phrase of, of him being the one to bring them out to this place is showing that first and foremost, he desires the relational component with his people. You see, God doesn't begin by placing demands on Israel to observe his commandments in order to be his people. No, he actually begins by reminding them of his grace and mercy in which he pulled them to the place they are. You see, Israel hasn't done anything to deserve God's favor. Yet God says, you are my favored people, so come and be with me. See, ultimately, grace and mercy precede and undergird his demands. The context of the law is one of relationship. And so he desires to have this covenantal relationship with this people, with this nation. And in verse 5, he, he lays that out. He says, Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. And you, sh you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what God is saying is he's saying, Israel, to have a good relationship with me, to have a right relationship with me, you need to obey my voice. Listen to what I say and act accordingly. And there are blessings that flow out of that, and ultimately there are curses, there are judgments that flow out of that. And he says, for if you are obedient, you will be my treasured possession. And again, him making that statement, I am the creator God. So out of all of creation, you are the one I treasure. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. To use covenant language, God, the great king, is, is calling the vassals or us, this lesser entity, this lesser people, to complete loyalty and obedience. And saying, if you obey these things, then loyalty will happen from me. Obedience will lead to blessing. So God says, treasured possession, kingdom of priests, and holy nation. So what does it mean to be God's treasured possession? You see, the language of a personal treasure actually carries this familial significance. When we think of treasured possession, we often think of something that, that we own and cherish, usually of material worth. Um, last weekend, my wife and I, we bought a huge couch from Costco. I mean, when you put the whole thing together, it's like a 10 by 6 foot couch, so it's glorious. It's like bigger than our bed. And I think so often we're like, that, that is my treasured possession. Thinking of all the naps I can take on it, all that stuff. Like, that's what we think of with the treasured possession. Yet the language used is not that that's a treasured possession, but it's more to think through my daughter, Ivy Mae. Like, that is my treasured possession. She is my treasured possession. I love my couch, but it is so minuscule in comparison to the love I have for my daughter. And so really, God is saying that you are my treasured possession in this familiar, this family relational sense. You see, God's pointing us back to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, where he makes man. He says, you are made in my image. He's ultimately saying, you are my love. God is saying, I am your God, and you are my people. And he says, we're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. 
And these terms should actually be viewed together as they really correlate to God making the statement that we are his treasured possession. As one commentator states, he says, we should keep in mind that both phrases, that being kingdom of priests and holy nation, are unpacking the full meaning of personal treasure. You see, at, at priests, we're going to spend the rest of the time unpacking what it means to be a priest. And priests are those who approach or come near God and who are consecrated and devoted to him. You see, the basic meaning of holy is not to be separated from, but it's actually to be consecrated to or devoted to. And so he's ultimately saying, as, as priests, you are going to be devoted to me, devoted to your God. Their role is to make God known as spokespersons for him. They are to mediate the blessings of God to the world and will be used to bring the rest of the world to know God. So ultimately, God's saying, I want the world to look at you, and by looking at you, they'll know. This is what the creator God is like. This is what it looks like to have relationship with the very person that created me. Israel is to model that to the world. Remember, God told Abraham through, through his covenant that his offspring will be a blessing to the earth, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And it's going to be through being a kingdom of priests and holy nation. And then how does Israel respond to this? They say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They commit and confirm the covenant. And you might ask, okay, well, what, what is it that exactly God has, has said when he says, hey, you will keep my covenant? Because that's kind of ambiguous within the initial reading. When Israel speaks there, they're actually agreeing to the 10 words or the 10 commandments and the judgments that follow. They're agreeing to what the text shows in, verses, in chapters 20 through 23. Because the statements, all that the Lord has spoken, is really an abbreviated form of all the words and all the judgments. You see, in this moment, they're agreeing to the terms of their relationship with God. And just as God created the universe simply by speaking by his word, the word of God, the ten words here, birthed the nation of Israel, birthed the covenant community. So God lays out to Israel what he expects of them. This is the law that the Israelites are to abide to, and it is out of this that 613 laws in the sacrificial system become what is the life of an Israelite. And so the question is, what, what does this mean for us today? For one, we are God's treasured possessions, and we are his priests. We are God's treasured possessions, and priests are to walk in a holy way. We are to spread the light of Christ in our homes, in our workplace, in our communities, in our classrooms. I want you to realize that being his treasured possession means that you are of immense worth. You might be here today feeling betrayed, feeling let down, abused, downtrodden. 
Yet, if you have a relationship with God, you are his treasured possession. And in comparison to those things, you're really looking at a couch versus your own child. God loves you as his own child, not just some couch. You have immense worth. And as priests, we are really Christ's ambassadors to the world. So, so think of an ambassador today. And when I think of an ambassador, I think of the cars that they ride in. They have those cute little flags on all the corners of the car. And they have that unique license plate that separates them, that sets them apart. And so if, if an ambassador were to drive through Corvallis, you would definitely know because you could recognize the difference and how they stand out from the rest of the cars around them. So the question is, do we stand out for ambassadors for Christ? In a sense, what flag do we wave? Am I waving the flag of Christ wherever I go, whether that be in the home or the workplace or school? Or do I kind of put that in my backpack for a while and only use it on, on Wednesday night when I have community group or, or Sunday morning? Do the people around me actually know what flag I'm waving? You see, to be a priest for Christ is to boldly and confidently wave the flag of Christ. Are, are we living in such a way that the watching world can tell that there's a difference about us? And not only tell that there's a difference, but that that difference ultimately points to Christ. And, and our second application in this session really helps us flush that out. How do we live as God's possession and holy priests? We do that by really listening to God. Because the reality is God speaks. So are we listening and obeying? God speaks most clearly through Scripture. So the question is, are, are we listening to it? Are we actually taking him at his word and striving to abide to that? I mean, can, can we in good conscience, like the Israelites say, all that the Lord has commanded, all the Lord has spoken, I will do. Do we wake up each day striving to live out that reality? Yet by the grace of God and the blood of Christ, we're no longer stuck to the, under the old covenant. According to Romans, we are not under the law, but under grace. But the reality is that doesn't mean that the law is no longer valuable in our life, that these things laid out for us are no longer of worth. Kevin DeYoung, he actually says, the law doesn't just show us our sins so we might be drawn to Christ. It shows us how to live as those who belong to Christ. See, I want, I want you to hear this. God's love for us is not contingent on our faithfulness, but our love for him is reflected in our faithfulness. So therefore, we, we obey the commands of God not in order to earn God's favor, but we actually obey the commands of God because we've already experienced God's favor. We've already been brought into that relationship. And so I, I urge you, I urge myself, that in the midst of a faithless generation, we need to be faithful to the word of God. And, and sadly, I think some of us in this room, and definitely us culturally, as followers of Jesus, have taken scripture and really turned it into something that it's not. I think many of us have kind of created our own version of the Jefferson Bibles. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, he, uh, 
didn't like everything that was said in the Bible. So he just decided to take a razor to it, and he cut out the sections that he agreed with and liked and took some glue and just glued it into his own version of the Bible. And in many ways, I think we can fall into that same mindset. We might not actually physically cut it out, but in our minds, we have said, ah, oh, I'm going to write that off. Ah, God didn't really say that. Or, oh, that was back then. This is a different time period, so therefore it doesn't matter anymore. You see, the Bible is not a menu in which you pick and choose what you want to believe and simply disregard the parts that you don't like. It's not like a burger that you just take off the tomato because you don't like it. It comes together as a whole. And you need all of it for a good diet. Not just the parts that you like, but the parts that you have to wrestle with. See, there's going to be parts of the Bible that we as believers are going to struggle to make sense of. Especially in the world we live in now, there's going to be clashing and butting of heads between what the Bible says and what society says. So I urge you to not just simply cut out the pieces that make you uncomfortable, but rather actually sit in them and wrestle through them and talk to God about it. Talk to other people about it. There are so many resources out there to look and to wrestle through these issues. Strive to make sense of why God said what he said. Because again, in 2 Timothy, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Again, it's not that some of scripture or only the parts I like or only the parts that feel PC, but it is all of scripture is breathed out by God. In reality, God is God and we are not. So listen and obey the word of God. So, so as, as Israel confesses that, then Moses heads back up the mountain to tell God, hey, they, they have agreed to this covenant relationship. And then, and then God informs Moses, says, this is amazing, but you guys need to prepare yourself to actually live in it. And in 9 through 15, we see God's people prepared. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will, will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or animal, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments, and he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So God's saying, I'm, I'm coming to speak to you, and I'm coming to speak to my people. But God says, hey, you're going to need to prepare yourself for that moment. You're going to need to consecrate yourself. And he really shows two different ways in which the preparation is to happen. It's the consecration of oneself, and then also the setting of the boundaries. So what does it mean to consecrate 
yourself? Well, as we see, first off, the, the root word of consecrate is actually holy. It's the same root word. And so he's saying, we need to make you guys holy. We need to make you guys set apart and, and really reverent to me. He's calling them to be ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean and pure. So how do they go about that? As the text shows, number one, they wash their clothes, which again is probably a very odd thing for us to think today. We're like, well, we wash our clothes and put on clean clothes every day. But the reality is these people have a few garments and have spent days and weeks in the desert getting to this place. And they're in a desert. So the washing of clothes is not going to be the easiest task. Yet the washing of your clothes is a physical way to demonstrate their understanding that God is holy and that their cleanliness is actually required to be in the presence of God. And then secondly, we see at the very end of that section that he tells them to refrain from sexual activity. This is, again, it's not to say that, that sexual activity is wrong in the confines of marriage, but he's saying as you prepare to meet God, as you prepare yourselves spiritually, Abstain from personal indulgences to just focus on God and who he is. You see, consecration is essential for communion with God. And then secondly, he says, you are to set up boundaries. As they come to the mountain, he's saying, hey, in a sense, there's a barrier that goes around this place. And you cannot step over it. And if you do step over it, you will die. Whether you be man, child, beast, it doesn't matter. There's a, there's a separate nature to this interaction. So why does God have Israel prepare to meet him? What does this teach us about God? See, this ultimately teaches us that, that God can only be approached on his terms. The Israelites don't get, a, get to choose how they prepare they don't get to say, oh, well, God, thanks for telling me that, but I'm actually going to have a barbecue instead, and that's how I'm going to prepare for this. No, God tells them exactly what they must do to come meet with him. And the crazy thing is we see that in this consecrated state, they still don't really interact with God. You see, Moses is actually the one that interacts with God on behalf of the Israelites, Moses ultimately is God's mediator. He's the one that steps in between the two parties and says, I will be the voice for both sides. We see in this story that Moses goes up and down the mountain three different times. He goes up to talk to God, and then he comes back down to tell the people what God has said. This repetition of up, down, up, down, up, down really gives us a distinct picture of the distance and distinction between God and his people. I mean, even as they consecrate themselves, they can't actually step onto the mountain. Only Moses, the mediator, is the one that's able to do that. Yet for those of us who, who, who don't know God, who don't know Jesus, that question still remains. How can you approach when your sin has separated you from him. Even if you go through the process of doing your own consecration and living a, a good life, doing good things that build up others, the reality is you still need a Moses. 
you still need a mediator to go between you and God. Your sin has cut you off from God, so therefore you need somebody to step into the gap. And praise God that we have a better mediator than Moses. Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason he, being Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that they were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal life. See, it's through Christ and Christ alone that we can actually come to God. We can actually come to the Father. As Josh walked through the I am statements last week, we remember Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God can only be approached on his terms. And his term is Jesus. So if you're in this room today and you don't know Jesus, I'm so thankful you're here. But I also want you to know that if you want a relationship with God, Jesus is the only way. So come to Jesus. Come to the mediator that steps in that gap. And trust in him, for he alone brings you into the fold of God. For the believer, we ought to be people that rejoice every single day that Christ is our mediator, that Christ is the one that brings us into reconciliation, into right relationship with God. He's brought us into the presence of God. It's through Christ and Christ alone that we can stand before our maker. As we see in the story, once their preparation is complete, once they've become consecrated, God's presence is finally revealed. It says in verse 16, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And the Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole, commun- uh, the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down to Mount Sinai, to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. For you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. For the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now just imagine the scene. The Israelites are sitting out, making breakfast, drinking coffee, and all of a sudden, this cloud starts to roll in as they're sitting by the mountain, and the cloud envelops the mountain. And next thing you know, the earth begins to shake. Thunder and lightning. And in the midst of that, you hear these trumpets start blaring. And then Moses says, Okay, people, let's go. 
and the people's response? All the people in the camp trembled. You see, they trembled in fear. Just imagine what thoughts would be going through your head. I mean, the reality is all their clothes were just cleaned, and I'm sure a chunk of them just soiled them. The fear of what they just experienced. But it's important to realize that their fear did not make them run from God. It actually brought them to God. It actually brought them to the mountain. And it was there on the mountain that they met God. It was there at Mount Sinai, a trembling mountain, that God came down in the form of fire and spoke to his people. And out out of the end of this chapter, I feel like we really see two right responses to how we interact with our Lord God. One, a right response to the Lord God is to fear the Lord. As one commentator states, the God who was ablaze on Sinai is also the God who has rescued us like an eagle. He is to be loved and feared. But what does it mean to to fear the Lord? I mean, often when we think of fear, we think of, I'm scared of horror movies. I'm scared of the dark. I'm scared of clowns. Like those kinds of things. Those are the things that, that bring fear within us. Yeah, this is not the fear of the Lord. For Scripture actually says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, fear of the Lord doesn't make you run from God. It makes you run to God. Fear of the Lord means we cling to him because he is the only thing that is safe. Think of it this way. You're hiking on a mountain, and as you come to this narrow little ledge, where it just drops off on one side, but you know you have to get across. As you start to inch foot by foot, toe by toe, what do you do? You cling to the mountain. You cling to the side of the mountain, for it's actually the fear of the mountain, the magnitude of it, that actually brings you to embrace it. Or for others, think of riding on a roller coaster. I'm not a huge fan of them. And so when I go on them, What do I do? I grab the apparatus until my knuckles are white, just shaking, because I'm like, this is what's going to keep me safe. This is what is going to hold me together. You see, the fear of the Lord actually brings you to him, not away from him. See, God is our protector. Even as he sets up the boundaries in which he says you cannot pass, it's ultimately in our protection that he does that, because he says, I don't want you to die, so don't pass this line. So the fear of the Lord means that we view God as big and people as small, not the other way around. It means we care more about what God thinks about us than than what people do. Like, just imagine what our life would look like if we actually lived in that reality. That I lived being like, I want to glorify God today, and every day God says, well done, good good and faithful servant, versus me walking through the world just hoping that I get somebody's approval today that I'm longing. See, we care more about honoring God's word and statutes than we do about pleasing the status quo. Being faithful to God, not faithful to society. The fear of the Lord means an awe and submission to him daily. It means we go to God knowing that we are lesser and he is greater. And secondly, 
when we do go to God, we realize in the story that we are to stand in awe of God's holiness. You see, God is the very definition of holy. God is different from us, and he cannot be approached lightly. So do we actually view God as holy, or do we approach him as holy? It's like very often we actually have a pretty small view of God. I mean, there's actually an entire book that's when God is small and people are big. It's written directly to this idea. It's so often we minimize God, we minimize his holiness and who he is in our life, and the reality is as we minimize what he looks like, and his holiness, he ends up looking a lot more like you and me. Which if we look at that and think that's the creator of the universe, we're way off. I think so often we don't actually view God as holy. There was a, a short movement in the, the early 2000s um, that was a saying, Jesus is my homeboy. And there were shirts and there were hats and there were stickers. Um, Praise the Lord, I never bought one, but there was moments that I wanted to. And looking back on that, I'm like, that's so often how we view God, though. Oh, he's, like, he's my homeboy. Like, he's, he's my buddy. Or for others, it's Jesus is the magic eight ball that I pick up and kind of shake in my prayers and be like, God, please give me an answer. Or for others, we minimize him just simply to a genie. Hey, I've got these wishes. I've got these desires. Hopefully I have more than three, but here we go. Like, we minimize who God is in our life. Yet in a story like this, we see the magnificence and awe of who God actually is when he displays himself. Trembling, thunder, lightning, fire. That's the image that we get of God. I, I encourage you this week to, to spend time actually thinking through what does it mean that God is holy? What does it mean that God is holy? To stand in awe of God's holiness is to understand God as other. That God is greater and we, as his creatures, are lesser. R.C. Sproul, he actually has a book on the holiness of God. And he says, the clearest sensation that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. That is... When we are in the presence of God, we are humbled and become more aware of ourselves as creatures. You see, standing in the presence of God's holiness ought to lead us to our knees in worship. And yet the holiness of God reveals that he is the creator. And we are the created. The holiness of God reveals his otherness. Yet it also reveals that, that we as people, we as the lesser, are people that are in need. You see, the Mosaic Covenant was the beginning of the law. God laid out blessings and stipulations of what it meant to be in relationship with him. And actually in Exodus 24, it's kind of the end of this section in Scripture they call the Book of the Covenant. In the end of 24, that's where the covenant is actually established through offerings. They do sacrifices of animals that involve blood. And it is through this inauguration ceremony that, that Moses takes the blood of the animals and he sprinkles it onto the altar to purify the altar. But then he also takes that same blood and he sprinkles it onto the Israelite people. 
ultimately saying, for you are sinners. Israel needs to be cleansed by the blood before they can enter the covenant. Blood has to be paid. Yet God in his goodness and grace established the sacrificial system, established the sacrificing of animals so that his people could be made right before him. For when they broke that covenant, when they broke those stipulations, something had to be done. And so therefore they were able to sacrifice animals to have the animal's blood spilled instead of their own. Because the reality is God knew that the Israelites would at some point violate his covenant. And violate the covenant they did. For literally as as Moses was receiving the tablets, the stone tablets in which God wrote his laws to his people, Moses on the mountain and the people are down below creating a golden calf as an idol to worship, saying, this is the image of the gods that brought us out of Egypt. Literally the first opportunity the Israelites had, they broke the covenant. God says, you shall have no other God before me, and they create a golden calf out of the fire. See, God in his goodness, though, he, he, he knew that the law was never intended to save. Romans 3.20 actually makes it clear that the law gives us the knowledge of our sin and that the law will not justify us. And Galatians 2.16 says that our justification comes actually from faith in Christ, not the work of the law. The law was never meant to save. The law shows us that we need a Savior because we fall short of God's law. So what does it look like for us today to have a good relationship, a right relationship with God. How do we as sinners have a relationship with the Holy God? Ultimately, we need a greater mediator. And we need to place our hope in a greater Israel. We need Jesus. And in him, we place our hope. For Jesus is the great and better mediator. Where Moses fails, Jesus succeeds. And Jesus actually being God brings us into relationship with the Father. And Jesus is also the greater Israel. He's the greater Israelite. See, the correlation between Israel and Jesus is absolutely amazing. Just as God brought Israel out of Egypt... We see in Matthew 2 that Jesus actually comes out of Egypt. And Israel, in Exodus 4, God says Israel is his firstborn son. And Jesus, Jesus' baptism, God proclaims, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, his only begotten son. And then Jesus is driven into the wilderness to be tempted, just as the Israelites spent 40 years wandering in the desert of temptation. Yet in every way that Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Israel whined about water, Jesus said, I am the spring of living water. Everyone who comes to me will never thirst again. And where Israel complained about food, God said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. 
You see, Jesus is the only one that can actually say all the words that the Lord has spoken, I will do, and actually live that out. For Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. And yet, Jesus in his love and mercy, his grace extended upon his people, became the ultimate sacrifice. The one that never needed to actually offer a sacrifice became the sacrifice. He became the ultimate sacrificial Passover lamb for for Hebrews 10, 4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yet on the cross, as blood spilled from Jesus' head, hands, feet, and side, he became the atoning sacrifice once and for all for us. It's through his blood we are made pure. We are made right with God. And it's through the cross through a sacrifice that we are actually brought to a new mountain. No longer do we go to the Mount of Trembling where we can't actually step onto it, but now we actually get to go to Mount Zion where God reigns day in and day out for all of eternity. Hebrews 12, it'll be on the screen, says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no farther word would be, t- would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. He says, so you have not come to that mountain. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance, yet God's blood cries out for mercy forgiveness. God's, uh, Jesus' blood pardons us. So praise be to Christ, our better mediator, our better Israel, who actually brings us into right relationship with God. Let's pray.